Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Um, one of the things that we talk um, repeatedly about as a church is um, our commitment to hospitality. And so whether or not you believe the stuff that we have been singing and talking about, or whether you're still searching for answers and wondering um, about the truth of the scriptures, this is a place for you. But it is a place where we affirm truth. And for us, those affirmations come from the scriptures. And we've also employed just a simple question and answer tool to kind of orient us to um, the, the truth of um, the, the Christian teaching. So here, what I want to do is take a minute to profess our faith together. And um, we're doing it through this simple catechism called the New City Catechism. And here's the question for today. What does the law of God require? And I want to invite you to, if we can get the beginning of it up there again, read it aloud with me um, as we profess together what Christians have believed. What does the law of God require? It requires personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. One more. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. This is what Christians have believed throughout time when it comes to God and his word, and particularly what he commands. And like I said, whether you go, yes, that's right. I always want to do what God has asked me to do. Sometimes I struggle to do that, but I always want to. Or whether you say, I'm not sure I really believe everything that God is asking me to do. This is a place for you. What I want to do to start our time this morning is to, is to read some scripture together. So um, now that you've wonderfully all sat down, let's, let's get some exercise and stand back up. And we're going to read a few verses aloud from Luke um, chapter 24. One, two, three, read. Then he said to them, Go ahead and have a seat. And as you do, pray for me and I'll pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thanks for being here already and meeting with us this morning. And my heart is burdened that you would um, meet with us yet again, that you would encourage us from this word, that you would open eyes, that you would make ears to hear, and that you would give um, hearts that are ready to move. God, would you give a receptivity, a willingness to 
hear from you to the people in this room this morning? And would you give me the grace to teach and the joy to proclaim the things that are revealed in this passage of Scripture? So thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, let me give you a quick recap of what we've been doing over the last month or so. It's been, I think, over a month since we've been in this series called The Ripple Effect. And uh, my whole hope has been that the gospel would sort of land. It would drop in a way that makes a, a bigger, perhaps wider impact in your own life personally, but then sort of ripples beyond you and begins to affect the people and the lives around you. And so um, if you're sort of got your thinking hat on, the first question that I was trying to tackle is, what is the first step to a gospel ripple effect happening in your life? And it's, it's really simple. It's to understand the one true gospel, but then to embrace the one whom the good news is about. It's both to understand and to embrace Jesus for who he is and for who we see himself, who we see he is in Luke 24. Um, And here's what we said. Listen, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited king. He is this deliverer and figure that has been promised throughout history. And he shows up on the scene as the, the one who is like Moses, another prophet, And he shows up as the one who is a descendant of David, who is the king, and the one who is the son of God, somehow God in the flesh, the Messiah. But not only is Jesus that, he is the substitute that you and I most need. He is the one who has gone not just and lived a good life, but who has died a sacrificial death. He is the one who has paid it all on the cross for you and for me. The good news of the gospel is, of course, that he died for me. But it's more than that as well. Because on the cross, rather than just an individual work or a personal news, Jesus has secured the restoration of all things by defeating all that stands against goodness and righteousness and truth in our world. On the cross, the scriptures help us see that Jesus has won. He has defeated Satan, sin, and death. And now, full restoration, the world being put right again, is the end, is the destination. So what's the second step? If the first step is sort of grapple with all the fullness of the good news of Jesus, what's the second step? Well, I kind of started last week on it. Um, The second step is to understand that God himself actually has a cause. He's on mission. God has something that he's working out throughout history, has a purpose in the world. And then to begin to embrace that you and I are actually his plan for furthering the mission. You and I are the ones called into action. So my oldest daughter is five, and she has pretty much every night started playing this game at bedtime. Um, she uh, gets put to bed a little bit later than the other two kids, and so by the time I come downstairs after putting the little ones to bed, the entirety of the main floor is it's dark. Like, she's flipped off every light switch in the house. It's black, and she knows it's dark outside, so you really can't see anything. And she has the lone little toy flashlight. 
And she's sort of working her way around and calling to me, and I can see the light dancing, you know? And it's, it's interesting. She's not trying to find something, like she's lost it in the dark or the power has gone out or anything. She has created a whole world in the dark, and her flashlight is the only means by which you can see the forest she has made and the little den that she has created for herself as an animal. And like, I get invited into this world to play with her as soon as I come down. Like, it's kind of magical. But the light is key to seeing everything that there is. Now, we could talk about the mission of God as sort of a spotlight that we have to sort of search around and then put our finger on where it talks about. But what I've been trying to help you see is that it's best to think of the scriptures as the mission of God is the light itself, shining and illuminating an entire world that's not imaginary, but actually is ultimate reality. It helps you see the forest, the trees, and everything along the path. The mission is not just sort of one little thing, but it is the light that shows you everything. And so let's look at this second step today toward a gospel ripple effect. And I want to do it through closing out chapter 24 of Luke's gospel. And there's three parts, okay? For my note takers, here you go. Jesus and the two. Jesus and the twelve. Jesus and the truth. Jesus and the two, Jesus and the 12, Jesus and the truth. All right, you guys ready to go? All right, let's go. We got some reading to do. It's a long chapter. Here's verse 13. Let me catch you up from last week. That very day, two of them, Jesus and the two, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they answered him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and in word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They went at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, the two, O oh, foolish ones, simple ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's interesting, right? These two have all the raw materials of belief, but they can't quite seem to put it together. You know, I... 
I used to cook a lot more than I do. Laura and I used to have this sort of like cooking, you know, leisure, like fun of making things, and now we don't as much anymore. And when we started cooking early in our marriage, um, we realized we had two completely different approaches to cooking, right? Like Laura's the kind of person who finds a recipe she likes, goes to the store, buys everything, arrays it all, and like has the ingredients ready to execute the plan. She can see the dish before it starts, right? And I'm the kind of cook that like, hey, what do we got in the cupboard? Like a little bit here and there and a dash of this and that. And I sort of like spin this thing in my mind of there's the end of what we're going to make. And I don't really quite know, but I know I'm going to put dinner on the table. And, uh, but either way, we both have all of the raw materials, as it were, the ingredients she actually knows what she's doing. I don't, right? I'm the one who can't quite see the end. And these disciples have all of the raw materials, but they can't yet see. They don't know what to make of these things. And so Jesus comes alongside of them again as a teacher. If you read Luke's account of the gospel, which is Jesus' life and ministry, this little story actually is a good summary of all of the main themes. So you have them on a journey, right? They're walking along on the road from one place to another. And if you look carefully at the book, chapter 9, which is about the midway point, all the way until the end is a journey. From chapter 9 to the end of the book, Jesus is on the road with his disciples towards Jerusalem. It's all a trip. It's all an adventure heading towards Jerusalem and the cross as the culmination. And now they're again back on the road and we're wondering what's going to happen. But not only that, this theme of fulfillment of the scriptures is woven all the way throughout the book. In the beginning, Jesus' birth is talked about as the fulfillment of scripture. And then his own ministry is talked about as the fulfillment of prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. And then on throughout this, throughout this book, you see Luke, the author, weaving in all of the Old Testament to help you see Jesus is the one who we should be expecting. And now they're wondering how can the Messiah have died? And then finally, the third piece we're going to see in a minute, which is hospitality. They're about to sit down and have a meal. And at these meal times with Jesus, the miraculous happens. Insight gets gained and new eyes to see um, regularly occurs. So let's read on. This is verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For, oops, a couple of pages too many. It's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour. Remember, it had been late. And they rose that same hour and ran back to Jerusalem where they found the 11 who were gathered together. And, and they were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon, whose name is Peter. So there's been another appearance of Jesus. And then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
Now, I love this passage, particularly for the phrase, their hearts burned within them while he opened up the scriptures to them. And my sense is that for some of you, you've experienced that. Maybe before you became a Christian, you had this sort of feeling within you that something is going to happen. And there is something about this book and these passages that speaks to my soul. Or perhaps even this morning, if you don't yet consider yourself a Christian, your heart is warmed a bit as you consider Jesus. I love that. But beyond that, I'm a geek when it comes to this book. And so the literary brilliance here is just astonishing, right? Like this story is the most incredibly structured narrative. You've got this parallel and mirror going on where in the beginning, right, Jesus appears to them, right? And then, well, hold on. For the beginning, they go on the road and journey away from Jerusalem. And at the end, what do they do? They go on the road and journey back to Jerusalem, And then Jesus appears to them, but they don't recognize him. Their eyes are opened. And in the end, he disappears from them, but they recognize him and their eyes are opened. They're trying to make matters make sense out of what's happened. And Jesus then, of course, is interpreting those events. And then there's the tomb that's empty, but a vision, and a tomb that's empty, but no vision. And the center of the passage, of course, is the phrase, he's alive. It all funnels to this truth that he has risen from the grave. But what happens here at the table? What happens here at the table is the first step toward a gospel ripple effect. These two begin to embrace Jesus as alive, as who he says he is. Look at they invite him in and saying, hey, it's late in the night, come on. Stay with us. Be our guest. And then Jesus comes in, sits down at the table, and what does he do? He grabs the food and plays host. Do you find that interesting? When, whenever you're at somebody's house, how often do you take the bread or take the meal and they begin to serve it to the people that are there? But Jesus shows up into this dinner time where they're breaking bread, and he grabs it and says, hey, listen, you need to see that I am not merely an honored guest along your journey, but I am the host himself. And in the breaking of the bread, what happens? Their eyes are opened, and they see him. But that is the move of true faith, isn't it? Isn't that the shift that happens when you begin to receive Jesus? Rather than him being the honored guest in your life as you travel along the road, and he accompanies you at moments and then seems to go at others, and he comes at your bidding, Jesus becomes the host when you believe. Jesus is the one who becomes, and you realize he's the one who's come to you. Not you have sort of invited him along the journey. He is the one who is breaking bread and serving you rather than you saying, hey, I think you need a place to stay tonight. Why don't you come with me? The shift of faith is very much Jesus from the periphery to the center, the one giving the things that we need. The first step toward a gospel ripple effect is to embrace Jesus as the risen king. But let's get to the second, Jesus and the 12. Here we go. And as they were talking about these things, verse 36, 
Jesus stood among them and said to them, peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus and the twelve. Not only two see Jesus, but now twelve at one time, or maybe more, gathered together, see the risen Jesus. And here's the deal. Not only is he trying to open their eyes and help them see, but in a minute, we'll see that he wants them to see so they can be sent. He wants them to see so they can be sent. And in order for them to see, the guy is incredibly accommodating. Look at the proofs that he shows. He comes up, appears to them again, and they go, what is this? He was dead. Is this a ghost? They they think he's some spirit. And he goes, no, no, look at, I have hands. I have flesh. There's blood still pumping through my body. Here's the wounds, the scars on my wrists and on my feet. Touch them and you will see. I understand your doubts, but come and believe. And then not only does he sort of offer his body to them, but he offers them something that a living being would need, food. Some, some sort of spirit does not need to eat. But Jesus says, hey, give me something to eat. Let me show you. This isn't going to like, you know, Casper the ghost style, just drop through me or something. Like I am a real human being again, fully God and fully man, renewed and restored, so different and so new and alive that you can hardly recognize me. But I am Jesus who was crucified and who has risen. I love this. I love this because the presence of Jesus is remarkable here. I mean, how many of us would expect Jesus to roll up on the scene and say, how do you not believe? Like, seriously? I'm here. He's not incredulous. He's not upset. He's gracious. He's saying, I understand. This is not easy. But it's true. I'm here in the flesh. Believe me, I have risen from the grave. How good is it that we see Jesus here meeting them in their areas of doubts? How good is it that we see the risen Jesus coming and saying, I know your skepticism. I know your hesitancy to embrace me. I know the doubts that run through your mind, the cycles of cynicism that you have long been in, but I'm here. Believe me. That's so good because my own heart can be fickle and slow to believe. I wonder if you're here this morning and have been slow to believe regularly wrestle with, could this be true? Do you see Jesus as the one whose presence is so gracious that he's offering proofs to you? The Lord of all is saying, hey, I know you need help. Let me show you. And then he goes on. Let's keep reading. 
Verse 44, then he said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Remember, I said earlier that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. If you get into the original language here, which is Greek, there's an interesting pattern revealed. Because normally the verbs seem like, okay, he's talking about that Jesus should suffer and die, and then there's this idea of him being proclaimed. But in the original language, they are so tied together by the same tense of the verb. That's hard to catch here as you read. What it should almost feel like is, thus it is written that, Christ, that the Christ was to suffer, to rise, and to be proclaimed. All three go together. To suffer, to rise, and to be proclaimed. What he's saying here is he comes and tells these disciples, you're witnesses of these things, is that, listen, I'm longing for your minds to be opened and for you to see. Look at here are my hands and my feet. But you must see so that you can be sent. To suffer, to rise, to be proclaimed. This is the truth. We've seen Jesus in the two. We've seen Jesus in the 12. And I want to close the morning by talking about Jesus and the truth. The truth was for these and for us that Jesus wants us to see. He's taken great pains for his disciples to understand the scriptures and to see him risen from the grave. But it's so that they might be sent on a mission. Listen, friends, you and I are the plan for furthering the mission of Jesus. That's the truth of this passage. You and I are the plan for furthering the mission of Jesus in the world. God wants us to see so that we can be sent along with these original disciples. This book was actually written not to them, but to us. Luke paints this incredibly detailed account of Jesus' life and his ministry and his resurrection because he knew that people were interested in considering this message about Jesus, and he wanted them to be sure of the events of Jesus' life and resurrection. Why? So that they might follow in the very footsteps of the first followers of Jesus. The truth of the scriptures is that you and I are the plan. We are plan A, the game plan for furthering the mission of Jesus. This is what the entirety of the scriptures points to. If you look at every gospel account, every one of these, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, they were closed with the resurrection and with the advancement of Jesus' mission beyond his life and ministry here on earth. I mean, look at Matthew's gospel. Right, You have there the Great Commission where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And then go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
And then you have, you have Mark's gospel. Look at the end of that one, where he says, afterward, he appeared to the 11 disciples, and they were reclining at table. And look, at, he, he rebukes them for their unbelief, saying, believe, I'm here. And then says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Their belief results in them seeing Jesus for who he is and being sent by Jesus to declare what he's done. But listen, friends, there, there is a lie that has crept into much of the American church. And it is that you can be a Christian and not join in God's mission. You can be a Christian and not join in God's mission. This is prevalent everywhere. It's in our own church. It's in churches all around our city. It's in churches across our country. It is in those who don't go to church. It is in those who attend church. It is baked into Christianity in our age that you can be a Christian but not join the mission. I've got a couple hunches why. Let me show them to you. I think one of the reasons that this is difficult is because we live in such an individualistic age. Maybe it's individualism that has captured the attention of many of the Christians in our time. We live in the age of defining yourself by who you are as an individual. Look at what um, Glenn Harrison, a Christian psychiatrist and the author of A Better Story, writes. He says, to those living out radical individualism, nothing external can be trusted. The inner self is the only guide. The inner self is the only guide. That's spiritual language, guidance. The spirituality of our time is that I get to decide the pathway for life for me and the road to meaning and to purpose. I am the one who gets to define me and life as a whole. And this, as it were, the age of defining yourself stands in direct contrast to Jesus who has offered a Christian identity to you himself. The antidote, as it were, to the aids of divining yourself is to receive an identity from Jesus himself. And Jesus gives an identity that is unshakable and sure. And there are many ways that we could talk about the identity of what it means to be a Christian, but I want to just talk about one piece, disciple. We've read about the disciples today, and the word means learner, pupil, apprentice. And one of the identities of what it means to be a Christian is that you are a learner, you are learning the ways of Jesus and following, therefore, in the footsteps of Jesus. If you look at the early church, nobody had a name for who these people were. It was actually the people who did not believe in Jesus who gave them their name Christian. Because in Antioch, the, the church was so crazy diverse and so drastically different from others around them that those who did not yet believe said, what do we call these people? Let's call them Christians, little Christ, because they pattern their way after Jesus, the Christ. Baked into what it meant to follow Jesus was to do what he did, 
make disciples as he did, tell of the good news as he did, proclaim the kingdom as he did, serve and meet the needs of others as he did. They followed in his footsteps. The other thing that makes living as a Christian on mission difficult in our time is probably consumerism. We live in an age driven by a strong economy where you are marketed to constantly, whether it's on your drive to work with a billboard, whether it's um, on the TV show watching an advertisement, whether it's on your phone now because all of your social media apps have advertisements on them. It doesn't matter where you are, you are being marketed to. Why? Because someone is trying to convince you that you need something. You are a consumer And your attention needs to be captured so that you can then contribute and consume. But here's the deal. The the antidote in the age of gathering things for yourself is also an identity defined by Jesus. But it's the identity of being a new creation. You, if you believe in Jesus, the scriptures say, are completely new. The old has passed away and the new has come. Rather than being formed and shaped primarily by the world of consumption, you have now become a new creation, which means that you are not a new consumer, but you're a new creature in Christ. Something completely distinct and different, marked by this new world that Jesus is bringing. And so the pattern that you follow now is not to consume, but to contribute. You were created in Christ Jesus, not for new consumption, but for renewed contribution to God and his glory and his purposes in the world. That's why you're brand new, because you have things to offer that God has given you and made you uniquely to give. You are not fundamentally a consumer, but a creature, derivative of the word create. You are to create, contribute, to offer. That's core to who you are, not to take, consume, and imbibe. That's not fundamentally how you are made. All right, this last one I'm going to draw from um, Mark Sayers. He wrote this fascinating book called Disappearing Church. It's one of sort of like a trilogy of books that are cultural commentary for him. And um, listen to what he says. He says, the great irony of our secular age of radical individuals is that we have become more enslaved by the collective. Secularism represents the shift from vertical authority to horizontal authority of the crowd. He talks about how the phenomenon of a flash mob has actually captured a really good picture of our society. Because what happens in the culture at large is something gets traction, and then a crowd attaches itself to it in terms of a mob, and it flashes very quickly into the scene and gets popular and then dissipates almost just as quickly. We live in the age of flash mobs. 
where by social attachment, we can gain standing, and by, social and by attachment, we can gain even social advancement. We come together with the crowd because it offers to give us something. But then when the crowd dissipates, we look for another. This is interesting when it comes to Christianity because Jesus ministered to the crowds, but he was very clear that the crowds were not his strategy. He had no desire to draw them. He was not sort of captive to them. In fact, he often left the crowds to go and minister to another place, and he spent the large bulk of his time on earth with 12 men and another host of a few people traveling with them. Why? Why? Because Christians are, are, are supposed to have this sort of like eternal yet earthly vibe about us. We are supposed to be people who are rooted, embodied in a time, emplaced in a location with other people. We are not meant to be virtually attached, but locally connected. And so the incredible strategy of Jesus that is sensational but simple is that we would love our neighbors and we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the entirety of our being, not just with our scrolls. Look at what Sayers says. He says, a small, living, breathing, devoted, spirit-filled bunch of actual human beings was what Jesus was building his kingdom upon. A small, devoted, spirit-filled bunch of human beings connected in community with one another. If that was Jesus' original plan, then my guess is we could be a part of it as we are now. That us as a small, devoted, spirit-filled community could actually be the primary means that God wants to use here and now to advance his kingdom. That we, as unlikely as it seems, could be the preferred choice to extend the rule and reign of Jesus. Now listen, let me close with a word to those who maybe don't yet consider themselves Christians. And perhaps you're saying, listen, I knew it. Oh, I'm going to come to church, and they were going to tell me that other people need to hear about Jesus. And listen, I, I hear you. I hear you. But let me appeal to you that when there are good things in your own life, you have a tendency to share them. And let me remind you that you would probably rather a Christian be authentic to who they are rather than live like one way in one situation and another way in another situation. Integrity and authenticity is a value. But therein lies the rub for the Christians in the room, isn't it? Because living with integrity as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and with whomever you are with is difficult, but it is the calling that Jesus has called us to. And if you are wondering, I don't have the time for this, I don't have the courage for this, I don't have the skills and the tools for this, Jesus himself anticipates all that and says, listen, 
I'm sending my very spirit upon you to empower you for the work. I will be with you to the end of the age. Where you lack skills, I will come through. Where you lack courage, will you depend on me and I'll embolden you. Where you lack time, will you see that I am truly present with you, which means you have all the time in the world for making disciples and for advancing the mission of Jesus because he's there on mission wherever you are. Perhaps we're just learning to open our eyes and see it. Listen, here's the good news. Many of you here in this room are still journeying with Jesus along the road. And I want you to see him as content to walk with you, happy to continue to explain the scriptures to you, inviting you to lay hold and to grab of who he is and let it resonate deeper into the core of your being. Many of you here are in some ways wondering if these scriptures are true. And may you even now, in this moment or in moments to follow, see that the spirit of the living God is connecting up the themes of the scriptures so that you might see that it is true and it all did lead up to Jesus, that this book is coherent and it reveals to us not just sort of one take, but the light that shows us ultimate reality as a whole. And maybe for some of you, the welcome of Jesus to the table is here again this morning, where, the, where in the breaking of bread, you might begin to have your eyes opened and see. He is happy to come and be the host rather than your honored guest. So let's receive his invitation and turn again to our table and to a time of response. We're gonna respond to God's word like we normally do by singing, um, we respond with song and praise. We're going to respond by giving, by contributing financially to the work of the mission of God going forward in the world. Um, and we're going to respond by partaking of communion. Communion is the, the remembrance of the broken body of Jesus on the cross and the shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It is the declaration that he has died and rose again. And if you believe that this morning, Come and eat with us. If you're wrestling to believe and you're not quite sure you want to take Jesus for who he is, why not wrestle with him rather than resolve to do a religious act? Why not pray to him or question him? Do something meaningful for you in these moments while we respond. The way that we partake of communion here at Emmanuel Fellowship is to come with your hands cupped a sign of emptiness, longing to be filled. And then you, part, you pick up the bread out of your, the palm of your hand, a sign of your own commitment to respond and to act. And then you dip it into the juice. We have a gluten-free option for you if you need that. And of course, the bread um, for you if you need that. The servers are gonna come up and get that ready. And I'm gonna pray for our time of response. Father, thank you. Thanks for your word and for the truth that we here in this room are your plan to advance the gospel, to extend your kingdom. Help us to identify the lies of individualism, consumerism, and even the social frenzy of our day as distractions from the meaningful work of learning to follow you as your disciple learning to love others as you have loved us, 
and learning to love you, Lord, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Bless us now as we partake of this meal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.